0: Welcome back to Share the Rock every Thursday, twelve noon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. Today, I'm joined by two of my really good friends from high school, Daniel and Jeremy. How are you guys?
1: Hey, what's up? I'm doing good. You know, just just chilling, quarantined. Yeah, I need to talk some ball.
0: Me too, man. You I know, I'm good too. Uh, I'm ready yeah. to get the conversation rolling. Let's do this. Yeah, I miss the NBA, you know. So. All right, let's 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 get it going. So just like last week, uh, I want to kick off today's episode with The Last Dance, which was this past Sunday night, uh, episodes three and four of the critically acclaimed documentary about Michael Jordan's bulls in the 1997-98 season. So episode three primarily focused on the worm, Dennis Rodman, and included many scenes where his importance to the dynasty, it included many scenes that showed his importance to the dynasty in the 1990s. So Rodman effectively functioned at the... Fu- uh, as the fulcrum on defense and rebounding, he was kind of that piece on the front line that the Bulls were missing and was essential to the Bulls' second three repeat, I think. And honestly, guys, I would even go as far to say that Rodman was both the most feared defender and best rebounder in league history, both, which is pretty crazy to think in one player, but I think he deserves that. And he also allowed Jordan and Pippen to do the things that they did, especially on offense, because he got a ton of boards, second opportunities. So I want to go back to how the Bulls actually got Rodman. So they, the trade was Will Purdue for Rodman, straight up. No picks, swaps, pick swaps, other players, just Purdue for Rodman. So how, you might ask? Well, Rodman, as most people know, is one of the craziest and wildest personalities in the entire NBA. And the Spurs were actually just going to drop him. So I think it's one of the most interesting storylines in NBA history that Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, who were not dysfunctional, signed off to taking Rodman in. And I just want to th- throw in also that I, th- I think Rodman – I think that Rodman would be one of the best power forwards in league history if he didn't play with MJ and Scottie. So the question I have to you guys, can either of you speak to the impact Rodman had on the Bulls with his defense, basketball IQ, and physicality? What did he bring to the team that they were missing before?
1: Well, I mean, I think when you look at just the roster, the the Bulls were always they didn't really have, at least with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, they didn't really have a, a star big man and you know, MJ and Scotty were both fantastic defenders in their own aspects, but they didn't have that rebounding capability, nor did they have that um, constant on ball defense with the big guys. And so I think definitely they needed
2: a player like Dennis Rodman who could even though he wasn't the tallest the tallest of, mm-hmm.
1: of forwards, he still was able to compete with so many of the league's bigs at the time, and they didn't have that position. So I think he just fitted perfectly, and they were willing to take the chance because you know Michael Jordan and Scottie Pipper were pretty level-headed, structured guys. Right. So they were they just needed that chance so that they could excel further and make it to the finals.
0: Right.
1: Yeah, I think a key thing to uh, look at is when Michael Jordan retired.
3: Uh, the team that won was the Houston Rockets And they won with one of the best big men of all time And Hakeem Olajuwon So they were fearful, fearful of that when uh, Michael came back And they knew they were going to need help to uh, protect the paint And mm-hmm. although they didn't although they didn't play the Houston Rockets They played the Supersonics with Sean Kemp And then they played the Jazz twice in the finals with Karl Malone So Dennis Rodman was definitely necessary to win those finals
0: I just think it's pretty interesting also that Dennis Rodman, you guys mentioned, uh, is pretty undersized to be the best rebounder in NBA history. I mean, he's only six foot seven, and when you talk about the 90s, you're talking about the, that decade was uh, basically run by bigs. You're talking Hakeem, Patrick Ewing, Shaq, David Robinson. So you're talking these big, muscular guys like 6'10", 6'11", and over, and the fact that Dennis Rodman was able to be – one of the most successful rebounders in league history at his height just speaks to his uh, basketball IQ, I think. I just think that's he's seriously underrated in that aspect. I don't think he gets enough credit for knowledge of the game. I think a lot of people look at him as kind of a wild card. But I think if you stack him up compared to – Tim Duncan, Carl Malone, I think he's right up there in terms of knowledge of the game, where rebound is going, where shot's going. And I, I just think he needs more credit than, than he deserves because he was a big upgrade from Horace Grant from the first three-peat to the second three-peat. So I don't, I don't know. Do, 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 do what, what do you guys think about his uh, his basketball IQ in particular and like the fact that he doesn't really get enough uh, recognition for that aspect of his game?
3: Yeah, uh, I completely agree. I think he is uh, one of the smartest basketball players ever. Um, He's not only 6'7", but it says here he's 210 pounds. That's not heavy at all compared to the guys we were talking about. Right. And during the documentary he was talking about how he focused on the angles, the ball Mm -hmm. hit off the rim and how just specific players shot and how their ball came off the rim when they shot the ball, like Magic, Larry and then of course Michael, his teammate. And he really cared about this. This is something that he loved to do. He had a passion for just rebounding the ball and he would never give up. He had a very high motor. You know, his second jump the third jump, like, he kept going for it. He didn't care if you were going to out-muscle him. He'll out-jump you. He was athletically
1: gifted, and he, he definitely showed that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> I think it's really a testament of his skill because, obviously, body-wise, he doesn't match up to the, the bigs in the league at the time. But, like, he, like how Jeremy was saying, how he – continuously practice different angles and locations where the ball was shot and then he positioned himself so that basketball IQ of knowing where to position yourself on the court to get the rebound and get those defensive plays I think really sets him apart from other bigs in the league and currently you know I've never heard any big or rebounding specialist ever talk about how they they study the angles of the ball and practice that so it's it definitely
0: is a testament to the skill. Yeah, that was that was actually one of my favorite things about episode three was when they talked about the fact that he would invite friends over to shoot around, but they weren't. He wasn't just getting the rebound; he was literally looking of how the ball spun. And he also said something about how Larry Bird shot the ball and how 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 it came off his hands and how it hit the rim if he would miss. So I just think that his uh hit his super focused attention to detail. Like you said, Daniel, like sets him apart from other people. I just think it's super impressive, especially in the '90s, where, okay, sure, the players did have game film, but it wasn't like there was social media, and you could see like all these highlights really quick. You really had to study more uh, yeah, a little more. You marms.
1: literally had to watch like every single game, and then focus on all those star players that he's going to be going up against. In right. The playoffs. Right. So yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. And I actually this actually segues into uh, the other element of this Rodman uh, last dance we're talking about. So, as mentioned, uh, like you kind of said before, Daniel, uh, from from a defensive perspective, 80s and 90s basketball can be characterized as a much more physical and rough style uh, style compared to today. Uh, That's a little bit subjective, but the facts are that the NBA took away hand-checking in 2002, and there has been many more foul calls in the last 10 years than there was in the 90s decade. I mean, these are just the basic counting numbers. I mean, these are just facts. And another, maybe a little subjective, but th- uh, thing that a lot of people noticed in the Sunday night's episode of The Last Dance uh, was former Pistons coach, uh, for former Pistons coach described what the Jordan rules were, quote unquote. So he mentioned that when Jordan went baseline or through the middle, Bill Lambier and Rick Mahorn were basically told to hit Jordan midair if he rose in the air. And James Worthy even went as far to say, I don't know how he survived the Pistons. I mean, the Pistons beat him up I mean, I don't, I don't care what era we're talking about. He took a beating to that team, and um, we'll talk about this later. Uh, I actually think the Pistons made Jordan the all-time great he is, but again, we'll get to that later. So Jordan had to bulk up 15 pounds in muscle after he lost to the several years, several years to Detroit, just to kind of match up with the with the with the bigs that Detroit had: Bill Laimbeer, Rick Mahorn, Dennis Rodman. I mean, that's one of the best defensive teams of all time. So this begs the question, This is the reason I'm saying all this, this begs the question, is this obvious drop-off in how physically the NBA game is played made for a worse viewing experience? I mean, I know we weren't around in the 90s, we're all freshmen in college, uh, we just have watched the NBA over the last 10-15 years, but is the NBA more entertaining when players are going to the basket, much less fouls are called, refs are putting their whistles away, and this also ties into players caring less about defense potentially. What have you noticed there in terms of the drop-off, in terms of uh, attention to defense since Rodman's era? And what do you think about kind of the physical drop-off that could probably be noticed by most people?
1: Uh, Well, I think that, you know, this topic is one of the most interesting for me personally. I think, you know, obviously I wasn't alive to watch back then, but I've talked to my dad, for example, who was really into basketball all the time, um, watching the Knicks play against the Bulls. And just completely how he would always talk about if anyone ever came in their paint, they would Oakman would just knock them down, you know. And I think there's there's a difficulty in regulation because obviously the NBA wants to maintain the health of their star players so that more people will watch. Obviously, if LeBron James gets injured, less people will watch the Lakers games. It's just how viewing works, and the NBA is an entertainment um, industry. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's really important however on the other hand with those fans like me for example i think that the lack of physical defense has really like if you look at the numbers for example james harden He, i don't know the specifics but he's shooting so many free throws per game yeah it's literally, yeah he shoots uh, 12 free throws per game and that's for a guard, not someone who's going in the paint every single time, it's crazy.
0: Well, I mean, there there is also something to be said that sure James Harden gets calls, but he does he does draw contact very well. I mean that that well, trans- it's it's nowhere near comparable to the contact that Michael received when he played against the Pistons. That's, that That's true. That's yeah. true.
1: Especially when you look at like the games that really matter and how with the emergence of new technology, the they're, the refs are recalling plays to see what happened and who touched what based on what fouls, and there's so much less contact, which is calling foul, which is causing fouls in these huge games, and like a slight tap could indicate or could cause uh, free throws, which could change the tide of the game in games like Game Seven of the Finals, and it's crazy how. Diff, like difficult it is for the NBA to actually regulate what's a foul and what's not because I feel like now it's such it's so much lighter of a touch that's required to be a foul than like of course back then but still mm-hmm. yeah because yeah, it's just the, the fact that like if you're not going to allow the
3: players to be more aggressive then don't just be like super nitpicky when they barely touch someone to call a foul because slowing down the game like that honestly just makes it boring because I didn't, like, pay this much money to just watch people shoot a bunch of free throws. Like, I want to see cool dunks. I want to see, like, big-time, like, steals and three-pointers. Like, I don't want to just watch someone just take some free throws. It's boring, in my opinion. I want to see some
0: physicality and some good defense. So so here – but here's the – right, I, I actually I happen to agree with you. I, I, I mean, who doesn't like to watch Steph Curry rain threes or LeBron posterize people I, I, and Giannis? People love that. But the other side of the argument is if you look at the stats, uh, the 1988 to about 1991 Pistons, the three- or four-year gap where Jordan couldn't beat them, that actually even though people could say they were a dirty team that team actually stacks up as one of the best defensive teams of all time i mean whether or not you know you like what you see or anyone likes what they see it still matters that they allowed 75 80 points a game even back then which is really not that much so if you're going to tell the players that you can't be more physical is that also the same thing as telling them stop trying that hard on defense because you know, if you're an NBA player and you're lifting, you know, you're going to be, you're going to want to hit someone if they're going to go up for the layup, regardless of era. So, is the, my, basically my question to you is, is this drop off in physicality bad for the mindsets of players who put in work in the offseason just to be better defensively? Because, uh, like Jeremy, like you were saying, it's, it takes a lot less for a foul to be called now. So, is this bad yeah. for the league in terms of the mindsets of players and how they train and things like that? Um,
3: I just feel the fact that like it just it takes away from the determination of players who want to work hard and actually get physical with each other because uh, I don't see the like the problem with basketball being more of a physical sport. If you're gonna call the fouls anyway, allow the players to be physical. You know, obviously like they took away hand checking, but you should still be allowed to create some contact because the whole point of a foul why do you foul someone you don't want them to score so you're not going to just lightly tap them because then if you're doing that to lebron you're still going to get an at one so if you're going to foul someone you should be able to foul them i'm not saying you're going to take someone out like the pistons definitely tried to take out jordan and it was evident if you were watching all the film from this from the documentary mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you should definitely be able to foul someone enough where they shouldn't be able to score super easily because that is the point of a foul
1: so
0: Daniel, is, is there anything you want to, you want to Yeah, add? I mean, I think to that point, it's, it's an interesting comment on that
1: issue. I just think, I was, I was saying this to you the other day, I feel like the limitations of defensive rules like hand-checking, um, flagrant fouls, I think they just limit what the players can do defensively. So, for example, I feel like some players, like Giannis and Anthony Davis, key defensive uh, big men in the league, they're getting limited in terms of what they can do because they're scared of causing a flagrant. And if you get two of those, you get ejected. So that, if you're the star player of the team, you can totally change the type of the game. So they're more scared to be as physical on, in the paint, which I feel like is where you should be most physical because the layups, while it's only a two-point shot, it, it shouldn't be easy to make.
0: So, so do you think that the this drop off in physicality has also not on purpose but as a side effect kind of helped contribute to the death of the quote unquote big man in the NBA? Because you know in the 90s you had players like Luke Longley, like I was mentioning before, like these big seven two centers lumbering around the paint, and now yeah. today you don't really have that. So could you say that the drop off? Let's let's say that like we can re- reference the NBA taking out hand checking and more fouls being called now than ever before. Has that caused a drop-off in the amount of quote-unquote big men that ruled the 90s? Do you think that that those two go hand-in-hand hand or no?
1: I, I feel like, the, the, in in a sense, yes. They definitely do correlate between each other because you, you look at today, you know, even in the last five years, the amount of big men that have converted to the post-in-the-paint uh, style to... A more flexible stretch for uh, stretch big game. Mm-hmm. It's insane. You look at almost any center, and I feel like now you point out more centers that can't shoot than that can than can shoot, and it's it's crazy because now the the players who whose position is to be a rim defender in the paint score, they're now moving to the wings and the outside, and it's freeing up even more. So it's. Mm-hmm. In hand in hand with physicality, it's causing less contact, and in my opinion, is less entertaining because it's it's fueling that fire of the more um, three point based game than an inside
2: game. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with Daniel. Uh,
2: I
3: just feel like if an easy player to look at is obviously Steph Curry because you know he's the best shooter of all time and he loves his threes. Yep. Um, the fact of the matter is he's a short guy. If you look at the NBA nowadays and of course he can score inside because he is the best point guard in the league, he's one of the best players of all time, but it is so much easier for him to just instead
2: of going in there and getting destroyed and risking an injury, he can now take a step back, shoot at
3: will and cross them up and just pop a three. It's just so much easier and it's safer and in his eyes it's more efficient. So it just makes sense to do that at this point because there's there's no reason to just go into the paint if you're if you fearful of an injury when you can learn how to shoot. I mean, if we look at Giannis, for example, he's a, what is he seven foot tall? He started his career
1: with um, he's six seven, seven, yeah, yeah.
0: he's six um, eleven he now. He, yeah, he,
1: when he was first drafted, he was six seven,
3: and
0: he's six eleven now. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And w- what I was gonna say
3: is, he averaged in his first two seasons, he averaged one three pointer per game. He's up to five now, so it has obviously took a toll on the entire NBA because not only the little guys are shooting. Giannis doesn't want to. Uh, I mean, he has well, to expand his game, obviously, but he doesn't want to just go in
0: there with the bigs every time because it's easier to just shoot the ball. Well, I mean, uh Giannis uh Ben Simmons, players like that, they they're they're almost MVP. Low. Uh, Giannis is obviously MVP. Ben Simmons will be uh, at some point, I think. Those those these players like that, they've made extremely successful careers as f- f- the centerpieces on their franchise without really the without really a three, you know? It's like so I, I, my point here really is I don't think that having a consistent you know 30 to 40 percent three-point shot is essential maybe it's uh more wanted now but I don't think you need it uh per se I, I just think that maybe you get paid a few more million per year in your contract if let's say you had you shot 30 percent from three as opposed to like 18 percent or something like that but I still think you could be very successful as the cornerstone of a team without a like three that's deadly you, you guys get what I'm saying no, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I completely agree. Just so,
3: uh, My point of the matter was the fact that, like, um, the, like, the reason he's shooting the threes is because there's no reason to go into the paint all the time because you don't want to risk that injury, and that's why it seems that the NBA has also gotten less physical yeah. because we don't see as many people driving the basket because back then in the 80s and 90s, nowhere near the amount of threes are attempted nowadays, so that's why you see that drop-off in physicality.
0: Right, right, right. And uh, the last thing I want to kind of tie back into this this topic we're talking about is, so, the quote-unquote Jordan rules. So, okay, uh, going back to what I said before, I do understand the Pistons had a really good defense, but... Come on, man. They were dirty. That team was a dirty team all, all, all in all. I, Isaiah Thomas, dirty as they come. Bill Lambier, Rick Mahorn, Dennis Rodman. I'm sorry. These guys might have played good defense, quote-unquote, but it wasn't without you know your cheap shot, Bill Lambier slapping someone when he could have just grabbed the rebound. There was always something. If you watch the film, you watch something. They always notice something. So there is an aspect of how, you know, how people could say Jordan needed to bulk up. He was too slim. But let's be honest. He was playing against a dirty team. Like that team was made of guys that were just literally, literally told by the coach to hit, hit him. He, he, if, if he jumps, hit him. Because everyone knows if Jordan's in the air, there's nothing you could do. So I don't know. I just don't feel like that should be Jordan's losses. That those three or four years should be, uh, he should be penalized too heavily for that. Because I think he was taking a lot of cheap shots, especially when there wasn't that much fouls. So I I, I don't know. I don't know if you guys have anything to say about. That Pistons team, and then we're also going to kind of use this as a segue into what we're talking about next. But that Pistons team was a dirty team. They were good, they were really good defensively, but at the same time, very dirty. So,
1: yeah, so I feel like most of the reason behind that dirty style of play is the intimidation factor. Because if you see Rick Mahorn or Mm -hmm. um, Bill Ambier in the paint and you're going, you're going to be scared because you know you're going to get your ass knocked down. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to be less likely to take those shots. And back then, players were not as good at long-range shots as they are now because they don't practice them as much. And I think the Jordan rules is just an example of strategy. I mean, yes, there there weren't really rules that were uh, actually in place that penalized the Pistons for doing that. I mean, they had flagrants, but they didn't really enforce them until the early 90s. And that's only when they started playing each other and mm-hmm. of course they're gonna do whatever they can to stop jordan and i feel like i i honestly can't blame them even though it was dirty because they at the, at the end of the day wins a the win they don't care how dirty it is as long as they can play the game right yeah i mean
3: jordan was near unstoppable when you get into the paint so like i definitely see the purpose of doing it because they w- they would have had no chance to win. Let's be honest. I mean, Jordan could easily drop like fifty points a night if he really wanted to, and he did do that. So they saw they saw somewhere that they could take an advantage, and although it was disgusting and dirty, it worked. So I, it definitely makes sense that
2: they they did that.
0: Yeah, and the other thing is, I think um, Isaiah Thomas is uh, extremely extremely hypocritical, <laughs> extremely because I oh, think definitely. I think he's changed his opinion on uh, the Bulls rivalry like i don't know like 35 times over the past 20 years he said he i've heard him say before oh i'm not sorry for not shaking their hand and now he's all apologetic again i honestly i think this documentary i think that if we're going to stack the biggest losers and winners of this documentary i think isaiah thomas comes out as one of the biggest losers of this documentary he's just painted as an absolute uh villain here you know there's no reason after getting swept after f- the goat michael jordan finally beats you after beating him for the last three years you can't shake their hand come on come on isaiah yeah,
3: I, I, that is one of the most pathetic things i've ever seen
0: that's disgusting that's disgusting in
3: the my fact view, that yeah. they try to injure the man three seasons in a row and it worked and then once that that man steps it up gets those 50
0: pounds muscles starts shooting from the outside where it actually beats them and gets sweep sweeps them not only swept they, swept yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, he they can't shake it, not even acknowledge them. They just
3: walked out with their heads like low, like looking at the ground. Like, that was it's it's cowardly, honestly. It's very pathetic to look at the Pistons
0: now. I think he, that. I think that he tried Isaiah tried to excuse it by saying the Celtics did that to them two years ago. That is no, like, that, it, that's that doesn't make that doesn't make anything right. That's no, like, no excuse for that.
3: Isaiah is an awful person, and I, I think we can agree on that. I mean.
0: Well, in, in in okay, so I would say that in terms of the Jordan Isaiah, I think he comes out as an absolute uh, a-hole. I, I, I don't know. he I, I never really loved him, but now after seeing the documentary and seeing exactly what happened, you know, Jordan before the doc was saying he's going to look terrible. Well, actually, Isaiah looks worse. You, you can't even shake his hand after literally being told your team telling your team to hit hit the man like Jeremy you were saying I, that's just it's it's disgusting it's that is disgusting I, I'm not usually this you know off put by something you know because Bulls Pistons has always been a huge rivalry in the NBA and I'm usually not this ticked off by something but the fact that Isaiah couldn't have basic respect basic respect for Jordan overcoming that was I don't know. It just showed the true colors of the Pistons team. I don't know if Daniel if you have anything to add to that. Yeah,
1: yeah, I 100 percent agree. It's just lack of respect for the players, and I feel like obviously you shouldn't do that. And yeah, I mean, pretty much exactly what you said.
0: Yeah, and, and it, like like I, I just ju- just to just to repeat, the Celtics doing that to you ha- should have no bearing on your yeah, actions. No. You know, if so, yeah. that that's like saying if someone does something really messed up and you know, maybe they come out as the winner in that second. But, uh, af- you know, a few hours later, you realize it was messed up. And then you yeah, guys, you know, know what this, I'm saying? It's it, not just it's like it.
3: it's, yeah. it's the fact of the matter that he's a grown man.
0: And yeah. He's acting like a
3: child. It, and children shake hands after games and he couldn't do that. It's just it it's just really basically
0: two wrongs don't make a right. Pretty much, you know, so I, I i don't know. I just think that, again, he really should have shown respect. But uh, um, I digress. I mean, I, I'm i sure there's still they're, they're, I mean, MJ and Isaiah are still really hostile to this day. So anyway, so kind of to use this as a segue into what I, the point I really want to get to here is uh, I think that whether they want to admit it or not, the 1988 to 1991 Detroit Pistons were a springboard team. And let me explain what I mean by that. They they were the springboard for Michael Jordan to go from superstar to all-time best player, I think. And here's why. So, as we've said numerous times now, they had one of the roughest, toughest teams' NBA history. Anyone who played them was um, intimidated and, frankly, probably a little bit uh, uh, bruised and shaken up after the game. So, these guys were coming at you. So, every time Jordan came into the paint, hit. So, like we've said. So, basically, I'm saying this to really say that they put the idea in Jordan's mind that I need to take it up to the next level. And the next level was... Wow! No one can guard me. No, I mean people couldn't guard him in the late '80s, the '90s. Even if, even if you tripled him, that he would still score sometimes. So I think that Pistons team put the thought in his mind that I need to go absolutely insane, bulk up, start shooting better threes. If you look at his three point percentage throughout the '90s, it just went it got better and better and better. And I think the Pistons really turned like lit the fire under him and magic johnson i want to i, I want to quote magic johnson here on the today show this past week he said I, and i quote the pistons made mj into the goat he had to add muscle and go through that go through that team emphasis on the word through not around he had to drive through that team and once he overcame that it almost almost like he could beat anyone so could either either of you in, speak to the impact that detroit had on the career of jordan and kind of the argument that they were the catapult that shot him into a a whole new stratosphere
3: yeah um, I definitely uh, I think it's obvious that they definitely uh, changed his game plan as well because I'm looking at the, the stats right here and his free throw his free throw attempts went down after he got uh, beat those three times which shows that he had to resort to more jump shots and it clearly worked out for him because he won eventually he won the three championships in a row and mm-hmm. you know I mean he completely changed his game style. Um, he became a better player, a smarter player. He relied more on his teammates, which shows. Yes,
0: exactly. Yeah. the The fact of the matter is, instead of instead of caring more about himself,
3: he decided, I want to win. Like after getting like beat those three times in the playoffs, he said, I want this championship. This is what's going to make me the best player ever. And he just had his mindset on instead of instead of himself, he wanted to win. And he focused on his team. He focused on his game plan.
0: Changed everything. And that was because the Pistons beat him. So I definitely think. Daniel, go. His career for the better. Go. I have a lot to add, but Daniel, go ahead. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I feel like with the Pistons,
1: if they weren't there, obviously the Michael Jordan that we know would not be where he where he ended up being. And, of course, you, you lose constantly year after year after year. And throughout this documentary, one of the big key takeaways is that if you're going to get MJ to work, you got to give him a challenge. And whether it be playing against his brother or um, – Or the pistons, it doesn't matter. He's gonna go through it and it's just gonna push him to work way harder than he already did. I mean, the they they mentioned in the documentary, but gaining fifteen pounds of muscle for someone that athletic and that in shape is incredibly difficult, especially given the amount of time that he did it in and to come back the next season Mm -hmm. guns blazing playing smarter, more effectively and as an individual just as a better player it definitely elevated his game so that he could go on to
0: become the GOAT. Mm-hmm. Jeremy I want to uh, I want to quickly add something to what you said so I thought that was really interesting uh so Doug Collins was the coach of the Bulls from 86 to 89 and uh so and the Bulls drafted Pippen in 87, but I mentioned Doug Collins because his game planning was kind of give Jordan the ball, everybody get out of the way. It's just give Jordan the ball on the, on the low post, high post, it doesn't matter, have four shooters around Jordan and hope hope it goes in and if it doesn't, we we'll have this we'll have one 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 big 7 foot 2 guy to get the rebound or three other shooters to shoot. So that actually worked for a little while. It wasn't the obviously it wasn't the best uh, method, but that worked for a lot. And the, and the reason I referenced that was because episode four focused on Phil Jackson, who came in in the 90s, and he changed the philosophy around that team. He said to Jordan, this is going to become a team offensive effort. It's not just going to be you. I mean, you're still going to be the centerpiece. But like just, just like you said, it, what, what you said was absolutely perfect. He cared more about his teammates now. And that showed, I mean... Sure, you can say that his teammates, quote unquote, carried him to two things with the you know the Paxson shot and the Kerr shot. I don't want to say carried, but certainly, yeah, no, it helps him. Yeah, Yeah, uh-huh. that th- those shots were key. But I don't think that if Doug Collins or any, frankly, anyone besides Phil was the coach, I don't think he would have made that pass in that situation. He would have forced a shot. Maybe it would have gone in. I mean, it's Michael Jordan. I mean, for crying out, it's Michael Jordan. Yeah. But John Paxson, Steve Kerr, they were in positions to hit those shots because Jordan. Well, excuse me, because Phil Jackson came in and changed the philosophy, the offensive philosophy around that team with a triangle offense and whatever, and I also want to mention Scottie Pippen had the best period of his career from when Phil came in to when he left the Bulls. So uh, I just want to touch, yeah, so I just, could um, could either of you touch on kind of the shift in Jordan's mindset when... Uh, Phil came in and told him this is now going to be a team effort on offense and it doesn't have to be just you and kind of how that changed the Bulls' outlook and kind of how that made winning the six easier than it would have been if that hadn't happened?
3: Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, I'm looking at some of Michael Jordan's most famous quotes, and I think one that a lot of people know is uh, he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take a game-winning shot and I've missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeeded. He had to understand that he wasn't the like he couldn't be the only guy to take him to a to a championship. And by having a new coach and losing the Pistons, he really got his mind opened up. A very important thing that I would like to say is in the Phil Jackson episode, um, they were saying how Phil Jackson brought um, some like yoga and some Zen Buddhism into it. Right. And I know that sounds funny, but like. It definitely opened – you could tell that it opened up Jordan's mind to realize that there's more to just a game than himself because it really – I mean, they won six championships for a reason. Like, they they changed. You're not going to just – you're not – like, something had to change. And I really think that was a huge factor because he not only became, like, a better ball player but became a smarter
1: person as well. So Mm -hmm. I think Phil Jackson was definitely needed for that.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, no, I think he definitely developed kind of a more holistic approach to basketball in a sense, if you want to call it. It also he implemented uh, Native American rituals as well because he, he talked about how interested he was in their culture and I feel like adding the other elements of the the players and the the rituals and the the different style of coaching all brought in the pistons motivation going back to that all brought in those things on MJ to help cultivate his basketball talents mm-hmm. and I feel like it'd be interesting if Doug Collins, was there for the, MJ's entire career and mm-hmm. Jackson never came in to entertain that idea of what would happen with MJ. I feel like he obviously would not be as he might still carry out the scoring titles and continue to be a scoring dominant player, but I don't think they got, would have gotten six championships. They wouldn't have played it as a team. And I feel like Michael Jordan would not have developed as
0: much. I think that uh, Doug's approach kind of suited What Michael wanted the most and I think that it's uh, something that goes very under the radar for a lot of people but I think it's important to mention is Michael had to make a pretty big personal sacrifice when Phil came in because he was you know for his whole career uh, he was used to taking pretty much not every shot but a good a good percentage of the shots on offense the offense 100% flowing through him and when Phil came in and said this whole new approach it took him a little while but uh, you know after a while he said I'm going to embrace this, I embrace the triangle, I embrace this new team philosophy Philosophy you're bringing in, and you know, that's really hard for a superstar to do, especially Michael Jordan, who kind of needs the ball in his hands, so I, I don't know, I just think it's really important because Michael Jordan is an alpha dog, you know, he, he basically runs an entire franchise, franchise, all, all that, all the stuff we mentioned, so I just think that uh, a lot of people forget that he had to make a pretty big sacrifice when Phil came in and said not run through yourself. So I just think it's that's important. Do, do you guys uh is that important to you guys or is that just another thing that you know you, you can say that oh that just kind of happened, you know, expect him to do. Is that is that something significant here or
3: I mean it's definitely significant. I mean, throughout his entire life he was trusted with the shots to take at the end and to run the offense even at UNC. He took the final shot in the championship game and uh Doug Collins was I mean I'm not going to say he was, like, in love with him, but he really liked Michael, and he wanted Michael to succeed. But obviously that didn't work out for everyone on that team because they never won a championship. So uh, Phil definitely changed with the triangle offense because um, they said that it turned Scotty into that point forward. And mm-hmm. that point forward was necessary for them to win a championship because it just created a better offense for the team to win and have more success because it resulted in championships. And it's just – it's crazy to think that um, – it was, really, it was really a coach, honestly, who needed to change because it, it just developed all these players to become better and
1: more as a team. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I feel like it definitely, with, with Phil Jackson, his approach kind of, in a way, Doug Collins was really focused on making Michael happy, but I feel like Phil Collins... Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: Phil Jackson. Yeah, Phil Jackson, my bad. That's fine. Um, He definitely gave the idea of Michael didn't know what he wanted until he had it so in the documentary he mentions how much he wanted to be like Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and be recognized for being in those championships and being those greats and Doug Collins did not let him get there because he just didn't he gave Michael everything he thought he wanted but Phil Jackson just you know like I said he developed him and to the point that MJ got to be that player like My- Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and mm-hmm. gave him what
3: he actually wanted, which was that championship, multiple yeah. championships, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, and that recognition. Yeah, and uh, honestly, this is me personally. I think he would have won eight in a row if he hadn't retired. I mean, I, that's just that's just what I think. I think that uh, I think he retired in maybe the worst possible time. It was literally the peak of his career. He had. One of the best sidekicks in Scottie Pippen in NBA history, Dennis Rodman. I, I don't know. I just think that one of the biggest what ifs in NBA history is if Jordan never retired, and yeah. how many in a row they would have won. Because if you take that Phil Jackson mindset to any team with you know Jordan Pippen or pretty much any top top end talent, that that could make for a very a uh, successful run, uh, a, a very successfully run basketball team, just because of what the things Phil brought, and Phil was obviously a key part of both the Bulls and the Lakers dynasties. And, yeah, I was just, I was just yeah. gonna say Lucas that uh, yeah. we
3: can see that evidently in the Lakers. I mean, they won three championships for a reason. They had a player in Kobe Bryant who was just like Michael Jordan, uh, all about himself but he
0: taught him to play with Shag and play as a team, and that's why they won. 3 Pete then. uh Well, I mean, Phil won five with the Lakers, but then 3 Pete early 2000s then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then two, two later, yeah. Legend, man. I mean, I can't say I uh, I like what he did with the Knicks. I can't say that. <laughs> yeah. I really I can't at all. But uh, as a coach, uh, I'd probably put him yeah, as – as a, as a player with the Knicks, at least he got you some rings. Yeah, man, last ring was 1973. That's a long time ago. <sighs>
1: I feel like going back on that topic though mm-hmm. with what if MJ, you know, stayed in the league. Yeah. I feel like I I honestly don't know what would have happened, but I, I can say this that I do empathize with him. And that obviously your dad your dad dies and you have you a shot. Hu- yeah, you have yeah. this huge you have this huge burden on you of being the face of the NBA and the face of your franchise and like there were so many emotions when he won his first championship that the guy's never seen because he always had to have that that level head and that constant drive that mm-hmm. I feel like personally would have had a lot of pressure on him. and with that emotional of an event your dad getting shot and winning all these championships it's got to be a huge burden and I feel like honestly I don't I don't blame him for trying baseball out in his dad's dream
0: Me neither. I don't and his dad's memory, yeah, I don't, I don't blame him either, yeah. All right, so that about wraps up uh, what we want to talk about with The Last Dance, but I do want to mention The Last Dance, episodes uh, five and six, I believe, are airing this Sunday on ESPN. You know, we're all looking forward to it with uh, no sports. Um, I mean, it's been absolutely amazing so far. It's been nothing short of uh, one of the, my favorite documentaries of all time. So uh, I highly recommend anybody with even any... Passing interest in basketball or sports at all to to, uh, to, to 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 just just go check it out. I mean, there's so many cool little clips that we would have never seen of Jordan's uh, career. And one quick thing before we move on here is I do want to mention uh um our RIP to the legend uh, Kobe Bryant. Obviously, uh, we all miss him as well. Uh, the news also came out. Uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm not gonna go too deep into this, but the news came out that a camera crew did follow him around for his last season. In, uh, as, as a Laker. So, in maybe, I don't know, 10, however, however many years, but 10, 15 years from now, when that comes out, that's going to be absolutely amazing too. So, I just think this documentary is kind of starting this new era of sort of um, looking back and, uh, and just uh, o- o- overviewing these great players. Basketball. Yeah, that's the best way to put it, just uh, appreciating these players in a way that everyone can kind of uh, relate to. So, great job to ESPN, and we look forward to that. Yeah. Okay, so I do want to jump forward to something a little more current. So, another theme, you know, obviously we're all stuck at home due to the coronavirus, but another th- uh, a very popular theme with a lot of big sports websites now is to release these mock drafts. And uh, some of them are pretty controversial, I'm not going to lie. I kind of don't agree with a lot of the picks that they make in a lot of them. But I have to say I love reading them because it gives me new some new content to consume, kind of look back and say, wow, that class was really good. That class was really bad. So this um, – now I want to look at the 2011 draft. The uh, redraft. The yeah. redraft, exactly. The, uh, the, I want to look at the 2011 re- redraft. Uh, Bleach Report posted this. We're usually pretty good, but I have several, uh, let's say, qualms with the top ten here. <laughs> So, I'm just going to go through the... So, we're not going to do the whole first round. We're just going to do the top 10 here uh, just to kind of get the overview. So, we got 1 through 10. Kawhi Leonard, Clay Thompson, Kyrie Irving, Jimmy Butler, Kemba Walker, Nikola Vucevic, Isaiah Thomas, Jonas Valanciunas, Tristan Thompson, Tobias Harris. Oh, boy, do I have bones to pick with this. Okay, so I have no problem with the top four. I I agree. Kawhi, Clay, Kyrie, Jimmy, and yes, you heard that correctly. I would take Clay over Kyrie. Absolutely, I think Clay is a better team player. He doesn't need the ball in his hands to be successful. He doesn't create as much drama as Kyrie does. I I, lo- <laughs> I like Clay better. But after Jimmy Butler at four, we started having serious issues. I just want to ask you guys something. How is Tobias Harris below Isaiah Thomas, Jonas Valanciunas, and Tristan Thompson? How? How is that possible? Tobias Harris is a hundred eighty million dollar guy, you know, one of the best players on the Sixers. Behind, I I would say he's the third best player behind Simmons and Embiid, and he's been very good everywhere. Everywhere he's gone. So how could Bleacher Report put him ahead of Valanciunas? I mean, not ahead, behind, behind Valanciunas and Thompson. That doesn't make any sense. Tobias Harris. So that's my one big issue. Two, yeah. my sec my second big issue is, I think um, Isaiah Thomas gets way too much credit for having let's say three really good seasons most of his career let's not let, let, let's not forget he was not that amazing he was starter level maybe but he wasn't superstar level only maybe only two bo- seasons in Boston and he was alright in Phoenix for the short time he was there but I want to hear you guys opinion on this redraft because I think it's ridiculous Tobias Harris at 10 and IT at 7 no but go, go ahead guys I feel like they, they may have
1: over drafted or they may have put Isaiah Thomas too high because he was the last pick in this draft. Right. But I, I definitely agree with what you were saying on the Tobias Harris. I think he is would be worth seven. I think he'd be number seven behind Vucevic hmm I yeah. I just think he's more of an all around player. And like you were saying with Clay Thompson and Kyrie, um, for exactly the same points you mentioned, I do I would definitely take Clay just because he could definitely build a more uh, stable championship team than Kyrie could. Right. I feel like the Jimmy Butler and Kemba – sorry, Jeremy, but I feel like the Jimmy Butler and Kemba – those picks could actually maybe enter to- in uh swap because I feel like I feel like no 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 listen to Dan, Kemba is a it. pretty underrated player,
2: especially now that you see him
1: on a team that can actually hold their own like the Celtics. I- what I was gonna say is the fact that if you're gonna have Kawhi and
3: Jamie on the Cavs, I don't really see the point of that when you could have Kemba and Kawhi.
1: I didn't even think about that. I, I just feel like Kemba, Kemba and Kawhi would be a lot better of a
3: duo than Jimmy and Kawhi because I feel Jimmy and Kawhi do the same thing essentially. So
0: okay, I but think. like, um, okay, that's a good point that you make. But I am, I was sort of basing this draft off of kind of overall like play, not really team oh, fit. If you're just looking at but best player, but yeah, Jimmy's better than Kemba. But I would say that, and if I'm starting a team, it would be Jimmy over Kemba personally. I mean, I'd rather have no, Jimmy. Definitely, no, 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 for sure. Yeah, but in terms of fit with the Cavs. Jimmy and Kawhi would be the best defensive backcourt in the league, almost. So, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I, this and to think that this draft was this deep with all these players you had in the top ten: Jimmy Fredette taking over, Clay Thompson, Derek Williams, Derek Williams, number two at, that? you know. So, I mean, uh, Jan Vesley, who Jan, is a star, Jan Jan Vesley, so. Could you guys say anything to like how how do these teams miss this? How do they miss Clay Thompson and you know Isaiah Thomas? How do te- I I I don't get it. I mean, maybe okay, I get. I, I mean, no, it does make sense. Like it's because
3: when you play at a smaller school like Clay Thompson did, it's it's if you don't have as good of scouts as the Warriors clearly did, you're not going to be able to see the talent that he has and his potential as well. So, it makes sense to me. I
1: mean, the Warriors, if you look back at their their last uh Pretty much every single pick that they've done in the last few years, you can tell they have really great scouts because all like <laughs> a lot of those picks really helped them in the finals. And I, yeah, I feel like Clay
0: Thompson was definitely a good pick. I'm also looking over the second round, and this is important to mention. And the second this is this draft was one of the best of the deck. I didn't even realize this draft was this deep, but in the second round, you got Bojan Bogdanovic, Chandler Parsons, John Luehr, Lavoy Allen. Etuan Moore, I obviously Isaiah Thomas. That then this is all just in the second round, and you got Corey Joseph, Norris Cole towards the end of the first. These are all serviceable NBA players. On, not bad either. Reggie Jackson, Kenneth Fareed, Miritich. and this is all in the same draft. This is, we're talking the same draft here. So, uh, basically, my the, so this is all for fun. This 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 kind of redraft, but the main point is I think that a good thing that's coming out of this uh, Corona outbreak and everyone being stuck at home is we can we're all, all sports fans are able to t- kind of take a little bit of a break and look back at kind of what was and maybe what we missed and actually how deep these classes were because honestly i'm not sure if i would have looked this in depth if there wasn't live uh sports to watch now you know so so the i guess the the large question i'm asking you guys is you know obviously this is a terrible time for the world with uh the outbreak of, of corona but is this good for sports that people can look back and kind of um, respect and and just overall take a total view of all the vast history of sports and just gain a deeper perspective on it? Is that valuable for sports?
1: I mean, yeah, 100%. I feel like you got to entertain the sports fans somehow. And I don't know about you. My brother just constantly watching like Hardwell Classics on, on cable. Me so. as well. Me as well. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's definitely interesting to look back at, like this draft, for example. Like I'm a Raptors fan. We drafted Jonas Valanciunas over a lot of players who ended up being all stars, and I feel like it would have been really interesting to see what how it would have. Like imagine if, for example, the Raptors drafted Kawhi Leonard, and then what what would have happened then?
0: They did have him for the championship. No, I know,
1: but still, imagine where, like what he would have won before. Toronto,
3: and then left to the Spurs. You know, it's just interesting yeah. to think about like that. Yeah, I think it's great that Bleacher Report is uh, coming out with these uh, new entertaining things because everyone doesn't have that many things to do nowadays. And it would have been the playoffs right now. And this was one of the best seasons, in my opinion, in a while. So
0: One of the best really seasons talks, of all time. How about that?
3: It re- it, yeah, I, I agree, Lucas. It, it really sucks that we lost that. So uh, I'm praying we could uh, get it back sometime this summer. We'll have to wait and see. But for now, um, I thank Bleacher Report and other uh, sports companies for releasing things like that so we can talk about it on this podcast.
0: Excellent. Okay, so one thing I always like to ask my guests uh, on these episodes of Share the Rock is uh, if they have anything to add or any you know topic or thing they want to anything they want to talk about that I share the rock with you now. So yeah, so that's pretty much why it's called that. So I'm going to ask you guys: Is there anything that you would want to ask me or bring to the table that something brings something to my attention that is potentially interesting or anything that you might want to bring to talk about now would be the best time. So share the rock conversely.
1: All right. I'm going to take the rock first. Sorry, Jeremy. Okay. I have one. Um, we were talking about physicality earlier, but I feel like the three point concept is still super interesting to me, especially if you just look at how the evolution of threes has been in the last uh, few years since Steph Curry became who he was. Yeah. Um, and I feel like uh, – If you look at a lot of uh, content talking about three-pointers and how this is good or bad for the state of the NBA, a lot of what I come back to is some people really enjoy watching this three-point style offense, but me personally, I don't. And I feel like the league needs to do something about it to change it because, like we talked about earlier with the stretch bigs, everybody is now taking threes, and it's going to get to that point where positions don't matter as much, and...
0: They already don't. No, exactly, and all the
1: teams are going to be playing way more similarly as they do than they ever have, and I feel like one of those solutions that I'd like to talk about and ask you, Lucas, is would bringing back the three-point line be a good thing for the NBA, or
2: Uh... would it
1: make it so that players are taking... Uh, deeper threes and not changing the frequency, or would it make it so that there's less threes taken because it's harder to take them, and then more two mid-range shots are taken because it's the least defi- the least efficient shot, and then it would just make it more of an efficient shots the players would take. So, what do you think about that?
0: Uh, I generally okay. So that's a that, that's a very good question. I generally lean towards. Um, I generally lean towards moving it back a little bit. I don't want it moved back like feet, like several feet. I think that I think the top of the key three is 25 feet right now. I think make it 27 and a half. There's no reason to not move it back a little. I mean, I'm okay, but and that's my opinion. But the other side to my opinion is I just don't think that would stop. Players like Steph Curry, Trey Young, from not from launching from that distance. I mean, sure, you can move it back to stop maybe a little bit of the stretch big movement a little bit, but I don't think that's going to stop the elite of like the super elite shooters from pulling. Because you know, Trey Young and Steph Curry, players like that, you know, um, Devin Booker, yeah, uh, Zach Levine, people like that, they're shooting from thirty five already, and obviously that the three point lines, the, re- the three point line will never be thirty five. So I think the only thing you can accomplish by moving it back is getting the big source slower to move in a little bit. So I'd say move it back two feet, but nothing huge. I think that's the best solution.
1: I think I think that would definitely be the best thing for the I mean, emulator. The only issue with that would be with the corners, you can't
0: really move the You them. can't move the corner, no no no. But, so it well, But
1: you don't really
3: so see big you don't really see big guys in the corner anyway, so I don't really
0: think that's yeah, no except PJ Tucker. I'm kidding. <laughs> He's not a big guy. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I, I agree I agree with you, Lucas. I think if they're going to move it back,
3: I wouldn't go more than two feet. Just because, as you said, the biggest point is that the, there's got – the best shooters in the league, they're, they're taking shots far behind the arc anyway. So it wouldn't really make a significant change. And it's not like everyone in the league is that good at shooting threes. Just because, like, we see more threes, it's not like we're seeing a lot of threes go in. Like, there are teams that are taking 40 shots a game behind the arc, and they're only making 10. So – I feel that
0: like I would just keep it maybe the way it is because I really really want to change anything. Shout out to the Houston Rockets who missed 27 in a row against Golden State. <laughs> exactly.
2: Don't even get me started on
0: that, dude. I want to lose my mind that game. Yeah, that that game was uh, a actual torture to watch, I- especially because I hate the Warriors. Uh, I wanted them. I really thought their dynasty could be over right there. 27 in a row. Like it's actually. I think it's harder to do that to miss 27 than to make one of them. I think it's harder to actually miss 27 in a row. So, yeah. got zero points. He went 0 for 12 that game. Anyway, so the point is, yeah, I think moving it back a few feet would be good, but I don't want anything drastic because I think the NBA is right now, as presently constructed, very entertaining. I, I think I think it's really well built. I think it needs minor tweaks, but I don't think it's like there's something that's like Begging to be fixed. You, 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 you guys understand what I'm saying? This, like, this season was definitely spectacular. So I think they should just roll with it. As of right now, and continue. Yeah. Okay. So that about wraps up uh, this uh, episode of Share the Rock. So I just want to thank you guys for taking the time tonight to come and join. Uh, your insight was very. Um, I, I appreciate your insight very much, and uh, I look forward to possibly having you guys again on in the future.
1: No,
3: thanks for having us, Lucas. It's been great, man. Yeah, yep. thanks so much, Lucas. I
0: really enjoyed it. Hope to be back here again sometime. Yep. So you can catch the rock. You can catch share the rock every Thursday uh, at noon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major streaming platform. Thank you, and stay safe.